So I'm curious um, for how many of you was there uh, a lot of ease and contentment and joy in the meditation? Okay, so a smattering. (laughs) And when I gave that instruction at the end about just letting go of efforting and just relaxing and into being, for how many was that a little more accessible? Okay, so a few more. Some of you are like, what was he talking about? I have no idea what that was about, but God, I'm glad he rang the bell. Then I got happy. And then I had my cookie, and I was really happy. (laughs) So um, last week, for those of you who weren't here, I I talked about joy some, uh, various components of joy, but I I felt I didn't feel done with the subject. So uh, I want to share more about it today and, and have a conversation because it's such a, um, I think it's a really important part of of practice, of of this path, of uh, happiness. You know, if this path doesn't lead to happiness, then what's going on? <laughs> you know, it's, this path is an unburdening and and and, and enlightening, right? We're in, we're lightening up our stuff our load, our burdens, our uh, suffering, the way that we create difficulty and stress and confusion and ignorance and pain for ourselves and for others. Right? So the net effect of that unpeeling of those layers, hopefully, and certainly true in my experience and the experience I see of colleagues and friends who've been studying the way for a long time, that there is a certain light lightening and a, uh, a certain freedom and ease and greater access to uh, contentment and, and, and a certain peace with the way things are. And there's a direct correlation between being at peace with the way things are and happiness. Because if, if we're struggling with the way things are, which we like to do, we like to resist and to complain and <coughs> fight and moan and do all kinds of things uh, to try and fix and change the way things are so it's to our liking. It's not a bad thing to do, except it doesn't work often. <laughs> Because the things that we're trying to change are way, way bigger than us, way more out of our control than we like. So, uh, I, last week I talked about this retreat that I did uh, in Baja, which was very sublime, the beauty and, and the, the, the joy of the group. And, um, and as aware as I was talking about that, that someone could be listening and, and thinking, well, yeah, of course you were happy. You're in Baja, for God's sake. You know, what's the problem? <laughs> it's sunny. There's beautiful dolphins and whales, and and that's true. There was, you know. But we can drag misery around anywhere we like, as we do quite often, 
to Hawaii or to a relationship or to a meditation or and so I've been reflecting this week on on joy and the and this but and particular sort of facets of joy in this practice and the the kind of joy that I'm most curious about is it's is the um is the inner state uh sometimes joy joy almost feels a little too highfalutin a word but it's a it's a capacity to be touched a capacity to be to know awe and wonder and appreciation and gratitude um, and love. So there's a, it's, I almost experience it like, um, it's like a pre-state. So in, in the sense of, it doesn't matter what's happening, what, whatever happens that comes into contact with that is met or seen or felt or experienced in a way that is um, soft or sweet or gentle, or easeful, or kind, or graceful, or aesthetic, or um, appreciated. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You relate to that. So, and it, it's really a quality. You could say it, you could say you could call it a quality of meditative awareness, really. And that's one way of talking about it. A meditative awareness is a is a state of sensitivity a state of openness, a state of curiosity uh, um, that's, that's easily touched, easily moved, easily... Uh, um, enjoyed. enjoyed. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, enjoy. Um, so there's a line from a Mary Oliver poem where she says, uh, when it's all over, it's a, call, it's a poem from when the, it's a from poem when death comes, and she says, "When it's all over, I want to say, or I want to know that I was a bride married to amazement. All my life, I was a bride married to amazement. When it's all over, I want to look. And I forget exactly how the phrase goes, but." Um, when it's all over, uh, I want to live as a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. So then, that and then I think that that line encapsulates. I was a bride married to amazement, where um, there was that state of appreciation, a state of receptivity, um, and what is experienced doesn't have to be beautiful or pleasant. It could be painful, it could be difficult, it could be sorrowful, but there's a kind of a tenderness. There's a, there's a non-struggle, there's a non-fighting, there's a non-resisting. And so, and maybe you've known this from your experience, even in deep states of grief, when, that's, when we've completely surrendered into the grief, there's a sweetness. Just as in the same way when we surrender into a profound longing, whatever our longing is for, for union, for connection, uh, for unity, for partnership, when we can feel and allow the depth of the longing, as Rumi so beautifully speaks about, without thinking it's a problem or that we're deficient, but we just allow the fullness of that state, then, the, then there's, there's, a, there's an ease with it, there's a contentment with it, even in the, even in the pang of the heart. 
So I noticed for myself, ha- having practiced for a long time, that this quality, this, this state of receptivity is so much more accessible. And as many of you know, I, I, I do a lot of my work outside, I lead my re- many retreats outside, I spend a lot of time in nature, and, and, and that for me, and I think for many of us, is the place where this quality of appreciation, appreciative joy, is so easily touched. You know, the, the, the natural world is so, it, it just it beckons this quality out of us. And it wants us to pay attention. It wants us to to behold its beauty, you know, to see its its dazzling mm, complexity and uniqueness. They did a study in a, in a jail, uh, in a sick ward, um, where some prisoners had a view of a brick wall, which is probably mostly the view in a prison, and some prisoners had a view out over the prison wall into uh, the, the hills around the prison. And uh, of course, the prisoners who had that view healed much more quickly. You know, when, the, when, the, when the heart has that ability to to be touched in that way. So most of the time, I think, in our life, we're, we're looking at the outer conditions to do that for us. Yeah, so we go seek out and create, create and find places that will awaken that joy, awaken that happiness. So we take a vacation to Hawaii, or we go to the ocean, or we... Um, look for certain kinds of experience. And that's a fine thing to do. Why not? It's a beautiful world and there's beautiful offerings. I went to the, the ballet the, on Saturday, the San Francisco Ballet, um, and, uh, which was crazily beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, and why not? You know, it's on offering, all these offerings here in the Bay Area. But, and, and what I enjoy about those kind of events is just seeing the display. It's like, what, am, what, what, what amazing things human beings do. They create such beautiful, aesthetic, delicious art forms out of their bodies. You know? So, so I've, I've enjoyed over the years in my practice seeing the, the interplay between my inner, my inner awareness, my inner practice, my inner st- state of, uh, of awareness, and, and how it interacts with the environment, with people, with, with difficulty. So when we, when, when we encounter difficulty and distress and suffering and pain, where which there is you know, a lot in our, in our own experience and in life, It can be met with a certain lightness, a certain, um, a certain tenderness. It doesn't have to pull us down in a certain way. So this is a poem from 
Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a wonderful Palestinian poet. And she has this poem called So Much Happiness. She writes, It is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness there is something to rub against, a wound to a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. That's the key, key point from a Dharma point of view. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake, cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. So, for me, this is a profound Dharma poem about happiness, and about the happiness that, uh, that the Buddha is pointing to, the happiness beyond conditions, where she says, you're happy either way, whether the happiness sings on the, on the roof next door or disappears when it wants to. So the key, and this is always a key indicator in our, in our practice, what happens when, you're, when the joy disappears or the object of your joy disappears? That's a really important place to look. You go running after the next thing, Right? Go see the ballet on Sunday. <laughs> Watch the reruns. You know. Uh, or do you appreciate the joy that came and then ready for the next thing? <clears throat> and then she says... Um, Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. So again, she's not talking about conditional happiness that would cause much prefer a nice house versus living over a quarry. But there's a certain kind of inner contentment or serenity that is not so buoyed either by the circumstances, but more importantly, not so buoyed about what's happening in our mind. So there's a there's a, a passage from Achan Cha, great Thai master, who talks about. Um, he says uh, the reason that the mind is unhappy these days is because the mind follows the moods and emotions and thoughts and feelings that blow through this house, and take them to be real, uh, and like you know favor the pleasant and and disregard the unpleasant. But if we can rest in awareness and see they're just passing moods, there's no big deal, whether it's joy or sorrow. Of course, we have our preferences. So this is the, this is the joy that I spoke to a, l- a little last week of equanimity, <coughs> of being at ease with what's happening. 
So, uh, not caring so much about what happens in your meditation. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, the mind's distracted, it's concentrated, it's happy, it's sad. From a certain point of view, it's not a big deal. You just sit there and you'll go through your various trips, you know, joy, sorrow, lust, hate, fear, greed, boredom, falling asleep, right? And that's in 10 minutes. What's important is we're aware in that. We're residing with some presence to that, with some spaciousness to hold that. And if you want that spaciousness and presence to hold that, you have to practice. It, It rarely comes naturally. For some, occasionally... Uh, it does, but for most of us, most of us ordinary Buddhas, we have to practice to, to ground in that. That's why we say practice in the morning. We, you ground in that awareness in your day, in the beginning of the day, you will have more access to that as you, you know, get on Muni and you, you know, deal with your emails and your colleagues and the, you know, whatever it is you have to deal with, the traffic. Otherwise, we're caught in the content and the, and the busyness and, the, and we're trying to make it all better and smooth it all out and, you know, it's a hopeless task. <coughs> so, the Buddha said there are four paths that we can follow around joy, which I think is a very interesting list. We can, ex- we can th- the first path, first path is to have joy now, but suffering later. Joy now, but pain later, right? So, um, like, you know, it's midnight and you can't sleep and you're feeling agitated and you want to feel better, so you go to the, you know, freezer and you pull out a big pint of Ben and Jerry's and, and you, try to, you try to make yourself happy, right? Or whatever your fix of the day is, you know chocolate or TV or right, and you stuff your face as you do because no one's looking and you know <laughs> and it feels great in the moment because you love you know whatever the weirdest flavor of the month is you know and then you feel really gross <laughs> and then you can't sleep because you've got this big lump of cold white stuff in your belly <laughs> that is the path of joy now suffering later that's the one we practice a lot. We're really skilled in this path. <laughs> so think about the, the many things that you do that bring instant gratification and, and later uh, remorse or <laughs> regret, <laughs> especially around eating. And then there's a path of joy now and joy later. Joy now and joy. This is a good path to follow. <laughs> So, um, so an example would be uh, the, the practice of generosity. Right? Generosity is a beautiful thing, it's one of the most beautiful expressions of the heart and of the human life. Right? So we, you know, say we, you know, we go help a friend with clearing out some closets or some, you know, some difficulty therein, and, and we just feel a natural sense of, oh, this is a sense of connection and of well-being just to help somebody out, or we do something at work that feels really satisfying. And, and, and so that's, the, you know, it brings a certain satisfaction in the, in the moment and also 
in, in, in the after effect, the reflection, the, the sense of well-being that generosity creates, a beautiful thing. What are other things for you that bring joy now and joy later? Bike ride. Yeah, so you're enjoying in the moment and you feel healthy and vitalized afterwards. Uh-huh. Gardening. Uh-huh. Yeah, gardening. Very. Putting your hands in the earth. Mm-hmm. Cooking a meal. Mm-hmm. Cooking a meal. Mm-hmm. Teaching children. Yes, beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And raising children. Yeah, so many, many things to reflect on meditation practice. Although not so joyful for some of you, but uh, joyful for others. Um, and then there's the path of uh, suffering now and suffering later. <laughs> That's really a fun one uh, that we get, we, we practice some. <laughs> so a good example would be um, um, somebody does a really great presentation at work or lands a really great contract or something that, that, that you feel directly threatened by or, or in competition with because they're shining and you're not and it doesn't make you look very good and you could have got that deal and you didn't. And so you feel insanely jealous in the moment and then you act it out by saying some snide remark or <laughs> some snotty email or... Uh, that is suffering in the moment and suffering later, because you then you then you feel regret and remorse and shame. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. Um, but a very common experience. You know, we're human and we feel jealousy and competition and uh, hatred at times and longing and longing for what others have. So, and a lot of that is in our minds. The the, the acting out in our minds, the negative thoughts, the judgments. So the self-critic is a good example of misery now, misery later. <laughs> I'm, you know, whatever your tape is, whatever your judging tape is, I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy, I'm a hopeless meditator, I'm, you know, I just suck at everything, you know. <laughs> that feels pretty crappy in the moment and it has a, it has an impact, it has a consequence, because it lingers, especially if we believe it, and then it, it, it perpetuates itself. And then lastly, we have suffering now and joy later. Suffering now and joy later. So, so that could be meditation, <laughs> and it is, <laughs> often. <laughs> you get up at six in the morning, it's cold, and you're tired, and, and you sit, and, and it feels like work, it feels like effort to bring the mind back. Like tonight, for many of you, it's probably a lot of effort to bring the mind back to the present moment. It feels like suffering to keep yanking it away from, you know, Starbucks or the movies or wherever you were. Um, <coughs> but the patient endurance of that and the consistency and the dedication and the wise intention and all of those things bear fruit. So much of our practice is this particular path. Not necessarily suffering, but perhaps discomfort or going beyond our comfort zone or um, stretching ourselves in a certain way or, go, or, or confronting old habits. 
Maybe if it's even confronting a habit like the inner critic, you know, sometimes letting go of a story that you're worthless feels really uncomfortable because you really believe it. And that's and then it creates it creates a certain dis-ease, a certain creates a certain confusion in the identity. You know, and we're so bound to our identity and, and the, the need for it to stay familiar and safe and comfortable. So even when we step out of a negative, uncomfortable identity, it's so unsettling to the ego that we, we quickly we quickly slip back into it. So but to hang out with the dis, with the discomfort of that will bear fruit. Just as the hours and hours and days and months and years that you spend in meditation sitting with your restless mind and your agitation and your fears and your doubts and all the stuff that comes up in, in, in life and in our meditation. And over time we develop some tranquility, we develop some equanimity, some mindfulness, some presence. Yeah, that bears fruit. Discomfort in the moment, but great peace in, in the long term. So it's like, uh, you know, meditation is like a, f- it's probably the best 401k you could do, really. Uh, in terms of, you know, when you think about your retirement, right, we, we usually think about a material state of being, right? And we forget that we're going to have our mind there, you know. We just think of, you know, sitting in the lawn chair, reading poetry and drinking tea and... But if we haven't taken trained our mind, right, the mind will not be retired. The mind, <laughs> the mind will be busy and active and causing a lot of the usual stuff that it causes. So it really behooves us to uh, practice now while we have the energy, the inclination, the, the resources, the interest, the energy. You know, because we love to postpone, right? Oh, I'll, I'll you know, I know, like, when I stop work, I'll have a lot of time and I'll just, you know, or in between jobs or when my vacation, or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a lot of practice. and Maybe. Maybe. So, uh, this last path this is, is, is counterintuitive, as is much of Dharma practice. You know, the Buddha talked about these teachings being against the stream, against the stream of our conditioned consciousness, our conditioned habits, our evolutionary reptilian impulses. So, um, and one of the, the main... Uh, uh, Places where it's counterintuitive is to, is we do, and we do as as a vehicle to understand, as, as a vehicle to liberate joy and happiness. We do look at our, our discomfort, our pain, our distress, our struggles, the ways that we act out that cause us pain. Because if we don't, what's going to happen? They're just going to carry on. So we turn towards them. We, f- we know, and, and the encouragement and the passion of practice is to really, to really allow and, and accept and let in difficulty, pain, distress, sorrow, grief, loneliness, whatever your, your whatever, whatever is, is coming to you in your life. Not as a masochistic act, because we want you to suffer and hang out with misery. No, because there's, 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 a, there's a way to transform those difficult states with, with awareness and kindness. 
So um, the existentialist uh, Albert Camus wrote, In the depth of winter, I finally learned that there was in me an invincible summer. In the depth of winter, I finally learned that there was in me an invincible summer. I used to have that as a tagline on my email to remind me that when we go through these difficult, dark days, descents, periods of whatever loss or sadness or loneliness or fear or envy or, you know, human stuff, that it doesn't stop there. It's not a dead end. It's, it's a transformative process. And we can find, we can touch in us uh, profound capacity that supports the, 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 this quality, this quality of presence, of joy that I'm talking about. This is a poem from the poet Rashani about, about this, this particular path of pain now, happiness later. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose strengths, out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. There is a brokenness out of which blooms the unbroken, the unshatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. Kind of sober, huh? <laughs> but also very truthful very potent that we, you know, it's sometimes we need to be taken to the edge of this particular path to know those places in us that are unbreakable and whole, already whole, no matter how shattered we feel. Not that we wish that on ourselves or anybody else, but that happens in life at times. I think rarely a week goes by that I, 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 you know, I, I talk to a lot of people with my work and teaching and rarely a week goes by where someone doesn't s- talk about some dramatic life event, some loss of a friend or a relative or sickness or something, something dramatic that forces us to really you know, find that place of presence which is why we practice. So, I was teaching a course um, uh, uh, in the Sister Center in New York, uh, IMS, and um, I was really touched by this, the work that I did with this, uh, or the work that this person did on the retreat, she was a gardener and uh, was having a difficult time in her life. And she said there was, she was meditating in this retreat. It was a loving kindness retreat where we developing a lot of love for ourselves and the heart. And her experience of the heart was like this really tight walnut. 
um, which I think is not unfamiliar for a lot of people. When we, when we drop into the heart, sometimes it feels tight, closed, more like an iceberg than a than sun. And for her, it was it was a tight walnut. And so, um, so in the context of this path, suffering now, joy later, um, we worked with uh, uh, in how she could meet that experience with awareness, with kindness, with openness, with curiosity, touching it, feeling it, in a way caressing it, like allowing it to be there, just with soft, you know, just like you would if you were with somebody you loved and they were contracted and tight, and you, you, know, you want to hold them and, and sort of invite them to open in a way. And so through the course of the week, this, this tight, hard nut began to soften and open as, as, it, as it does with, with love, just like growing things open with love. And uh, so being, a, being a, a farmer that she was, the, 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 she was looking through the metaphor of growing, and, and, and towards the end of the retreat, the, the nut had cracked, the seed had cracked open, and a little sprout had started to emerge, a little, a little green sprout of hope, a possibility. Uh, that the, the heart that felt so closed could have some tenderness and some sweetness and some openness. And that continued to unfold for her as the days went on and then she left the retreat. So I like that, I like that example because you know, we all have those places in us, right? the tight, closed, hard places. It's a lovely line from um, Anais Nin, and she says, and the day came when the risk it took to remain closed was greater than the risk it took to blossom. And the day came when the risk it took to remain closed and tight in this fearful bud was greater than the risk it took to blossom. Which in a way is every day, funnily enough. So I think one of the doorways to, um, I think of all these qualities like uh, multifaceted jewels. So when I think of this state of um, presence that has awareness and joy and appreciation in it, one of the doorways to that is the quality of gratitude of appreciation, <coughs> of looking at the world with, through the eyes of um, uh, experiencing as a gift, which it is. Um, there's a great line from Alice Walker in The Color Purple where she says, I think it pisses God off if you walk past a field of purple flowers and don't notice it. <laughs> I think it pisses God off if you walk past a field of purple flowers and don't even notice it. 
right? We may not have purple flowers. Well, we do have purple flowers. We have all kinds of flowers. There's just purple flowers everywhere. <laughs> Blossoms and the, this in, in, Mew, in Mew, I live near Mew Beach and there's a, in the valley there by Mew, Wood, by Mew Beach, there's a whole hillside of heather. You know, it's like pinky purple heather and I ride my bike up that hill. <laughs> I wish the hill wasn't there and then I get to, I get to be by the heather. <laughs> So, so what are the purple flowers in your life that you're not noticing, that you're not appreciating? And we all have many, many things. We have so many things, not to make you feel bad for not appreciating, but just to, you know, to, again, I think for me, when I, when I look th- at the world with, through the eyes of this receptive awareness, it's all a blessing. Not all a blessing, but there's so many blessings. Uh, so much beauty, so much love, so much connection. Especially living around here, you know, there's just there's, there's, there's so much beauty. So another interesting piece of this, and I just I'm going to speak to a few different ways that the Buddha uh, talked about cultivating this this particular path. He talked about the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. Which is a very interesting quality. Anybody have the bliss of blamelessness? <laughs> so the Buddha said, you know, the one who walks in, uh, whose actions and speech and thoughts, uh, you know, uh, come from a place of, of goodness and kindness and purity, that person walks with the bliss of blamelessness. So it's a very different way of looking at ethics where you should do the right thing, otherwise you'll be judged and condemned and be bad and wrong. No, it's this, this, this living wisely leads to happiness, contentment. So when you sit in meditation, you're not festering on the way that you bit somebody's head off in a meeting earlier that day. You know, or shouted at the kids, or blamed your partner for something they didn't do. No, there's a sense of well-being because you're not stewing in in uh, the things that you regret that weren't so kind. The bliss of blamelessness. So, um, what I really wanted to speak about tonight, (laughs) I just realized, (laughs) Uh, that was the uh, preamble to the talk. (laughs) This is a three-hour talk, I can tell. It's good to turn the pages every now and then. Um, Is the, the happiness that comes from wisdom. And of course, there are many, many ways that we we know and understand wisdom. Um, and one particular way the Buddha spoke to was the was the um, the wisdom of non-grasping, the wisdom of not holding on, the wisdom of non-attachment, the wisdom of living with an open hand, the living with a sense of grace with the comings and the goings, the a way of 
moving, living in relationship and in life without clinging so fearfully or so with, with, with a lot of scarcity. He who bends, how's that line go? He who bends to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who grabs at the f- at the winged life, the free life. He who clings to the to to life does the free life destroy. Does the winged life destroy? He who grabs onto joy and holds onto it. Uh, uh, crushes the very thing that's causing us happiness. So, this is a really great uh, place for us to practice, right? As human beings, because we're we're like Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> we just we like something, and we just uh, I'm going to take this home. I uh, like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, or that person, or that experience, or you know, and it's just—it's just—it's—it's almost—almost intrinsic to our nature. I don't say intrinsic, but it's—it's it's very deeply rooted. This habit, you know, we—we—we're—we're we're lovers of the pleasant. We love pleasant things. So when it's pleasant, when it's pleasurable, when it's—you know—we we just you know we can't help getting sticky with it. And it would be great if it worked. <laughs> so, and so much of these teachings are really reminding us that it's very simple truth, you know. To be at, f- to be, to have some sense of fluidity, some sense of flow with, with the way things change especially the good stuff. But it doesn't really matter. Good stuff, bad stuff, any stuff we cling to. Ideas, views, opinions, and I've talked about attachment a lot in this class before. I remember I was on my way to a concert in San Francisco some while ago at Grace Cathedral. And... um, I was cutting it a little fine, as I tend to do, so I didn't ex- anticipate traffic. But what I didn't anticipate was 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 the uh, San Francisco police <laughs> closing down just street after street after street, and I, every which way I tried to dodge around the closures, they just kept closing. All these motorbikes were closing down streets everywhere, and I got a little frustrated, as you do, and you're late for something, and you really want, you're really attached to getting there on time because you don't want to miss out on a pleasant experience because we like pleasant experiences. <laughs> no matter how much practice one has done, we still like pleasant experiences and don't let our friends down by being late. And I started to get really irritated with the police for closing, like, what's going on? What's, you know, it's Sunday afternoon. What, is, you know, what could be happening? <laughs> and they kept moving. These roads, I thought it was like in the Matrix or something like, is this, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then this really long uh, convoy of black, you know, this black um, 
Mercedes or Hearst. No, no, not Hearst. No, limousines. Right, you know. Some, and I thought, oh, some political bigwig, you know, some, you know, why they need something like, who do they think they are? They're so special. They have to have like, 5,000 police just to drive <laughs> down the road. And this whole story going on about who this person was and how they're interfering with my day and my happiness, <laughs> which, of course, was not the case at all. But And then later, I, I, and, and I got to where I was going, and it was all fine. And later, I, t- I, I, heard, I found out that it was the Dalai Lama going down the <laughs> <laughs> I take every word back, Your Holiness. <laughs> May you have infinite limousines and cars to protect you and all from all beings everywhere. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, be careful what you what you grasp at. <laughs> you know, but what's interesting about that is is you know. The way it's talked about, you know, grasping is the flip side of hatred. So we grasp onto something, pleasurable experience, and then anything that gets in the way of that, what do we do? We hate it. We hate it for interfering with our pleasure. Because we love pleasure. Anybody here not like pleasure? (laughs) (laughs) We mistake one of the great mistakes in, in the human journey in terms of in terms of awakening is we mistake pleasure for peace we think pleasure is the source of peace peace is the source of peace non-attachment and non-grasping is the source of peace pleasure is pleasure it can be beautiful but it's temporary it does not provide something does not support the state of mind that can be at peace no matter what circumstance you're in. It's beautiful and we enjoy it and we let it go when it when it's gone. And life will keep teaching us this lesson <laughs> to let go, to let go, to let go, to let go until we die. And that's the ultimate letting go, where we let go of the senses and our family and our, and our possessions and our money. And our, we let it go one by one by one. And when that happens, gracefully, as it, as it does for many people on their deathbed, what's that? There's profound peace. Profound peace. Equanimity. Letting go. A joy. This is from Gendon Rinpoche, from a piece he wrote called Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. As soon as you open this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open and inviting and comfortable. As soon as you open this tight fist of grasping. So your homework this week, 
is to notice this. Everybody see this? I got my hand closed in a fist. To notice the tight fist of grasping, to notice wherever and whenever it arises. So maybe it will arise before I finish giving the and finish the talk. Maybe it's already arising like, just shut up already and get over that. I want to go home. (laughs) Maybe that's the grasping. Notice that. Or notice, oh, I want to be the first person out of here because I don't want to be stuck in that line in traffic out there. Yeah. And notice the clutching of the belly. Notice whenever you, when you get, you know, you come up through a, you go through a traffic light and, oh, it goes orange. Oh, no. And then, oh, no, I'm not going to get home in time. And then just keep noticing that clenching. Or when you forget to, you know, oh, and I forgot to call somebody and now it's too late. Oh. Didn't send that email. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, see, didn't send those 10 emails. Uh-huh. Didn't even check my inbox. <sighs> <laughs> Just notice. Oh. Notice the contraction. Notice the evaporation of happiness. Yeah? If we are attached to getting through that light on green and it doesn't stay green, happiness evaporates in that moment. Notice, notice your belly when, you, when you're coming up to a traffic light that you really want to get through. Because <laughs> you'll feel it here. Yeah. So, this, so, that, so you notice the tight fist of grasping. <coughs> and then, usually in the noticing of it, it relaxes. Just because you're not caught in it in that moment. And so, oh, that's tight. Well, that's unnecessary. It's a 30 second light. Oh, I, think I, can, I think I'll survive. <coughs> oh, a nice trees by the lights. Wow, look at those. Beautiful. Mm. Ah, out breath. So, that, that, that is the movement of life right there. That to that, to that, to that, yeah? So, and, and as we move through the day with a more open hand, more relaxation, more openness, more letting go, we start to discover a, a greater sense of well-being. Oh, yeah, that's... It's okay, even if I don't like this, even if it's raining and there's traffic and I'm late and oh yeah. Oh, my my injuries returned and my partner's mad with me and the stock market went down. Oh, yeah. Well, it looks like I may have to extend this talk on joy for another week. (laughs) Oh, joy. (laughs) It's great for me because I get to keep reflecting about joy, you know.
So I had a day today where I uh, I'm under some very tight deadlines to uh, to finish um, uh, producing uh, my new website, uh, which is uh, a lot of work, as anybody knows who does websites, and I'm in, in a rush to get all my materials to my designer and the programmer, and and um, I can't say it was a joy-filled day. <laughs> But I was, I, but I was, what I was tracking was what was getting in the way of there being that access to joy and well-being. Yeah? That. Oh, oh no. I didn't have time. Too late. Uh. Yeah? So to not expect your life to look a certain way, to be joyful or not, but to be curious about what's happening. As the Buddha said, this is the greatest happiness, to know peace unchanged by changing conditions. This is the greatest happiness, to know peace unchanged by changing conditions. So what would that be, to be at peace, at rest, at ease, even with things going up and down? That is the, the potentiality. And we have moments of that. Practice supports the, the flowering of that in our lives. So thank you so much for your attention. Um, please know that uh, all these talks are available uh, online uh, at dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A seed.org. Um, and uh, I, Jack, Jack Cornfield will be, will be back next week. And may you know the deepest happiness. I'll ask Jack to talk about joy. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.